Uh, Father, as we uh, open your book now, will you open our hearts, open our eyes, open our minds that we might hear um, familiar truths, but at a time that I think many of us uh, need them. Uh, Lord, help us to see how you meet us wherever we're at. Uh, Help us to see the sufficiency of the Lord Jesus, and uh, might he have his way in our hearts today, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Um, It's here. In case you haven't noticed, the most wonderful time of the year. I know because Andy Williams sang that last night. We were listening to that. Um, And I can tell just kind of by looking around the room that it's this most wonderful time of year because you guys look exhausted. Um, You've been in your attic pulling boxes down, untangling Christmas lights. Uh, you've, you've been on the roof of your house braving 25-mile-an-hour winds, putting up lights, risk, risking your own life for the holiday festivities of your family to enjoy. Uh, you've endured traffic and travel. I mean, this is the season where just trying to get in and out of the Walmart parking lot is, is a, 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 a act of great accomplishment, and uh, you're on the freeway, and the off-ramps are backed up onto the freeway. And and I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, you know what, Keith? I did it smarter this year. I'm doing my shopping online. And then, you know, you're just ready to check out at Amazon, and it says, oh, we're sorry, that item isn't available anymore uh, because you left it in your cart too long. Um, Traditions. Man, some of you are really stressed about traditions. Man, you're talking about songs and outfits and pictures being just right and the meal planning and the the, the way the schedule is going to go. And and for some reason, no one else in your family is into that like you're into that. But but you're trying really hard and it might be stressing you out a little bit. Christmas morning plans, uh, parents of small children like, like we are, you're just praying that whatever plague is going through Hood County, your kids don't get going into Christmas morning. That just ruins everything, doesn't it? You know, they're sick and no one wants to do anything. For some of you, uh, the Christmas holiday is difficult because you want to keep your house clean and uncluttered. And when you invite people over to their house, especially the short people, they clutter your house. And they make things dirty and they put things out of place. And so that can be stressful. Um, more serious things. This is the season of dreaded family get-togethers. Um, you're laughing because you know it's true. Um, and, it, and it can be anywhere from, you know, bizarre Uncle Ed that always says that one thing to the heartbreak of seeing that person that was very hurtful to you and just being in the room with them is very difficult. Uh, or perhaps you're wanting to get together with loved ones and family and they don't want to get together with you because some breach came in your relationship and that's not possible. They don't want to participate. Some of you are coming to the season with medical problems. Things aren't the same because you don't feel the same and you can't do the things you used to do. And, and there are people right now in, in, uh, in nursing homes that can't get together. They can't do all the same things. Or maybe you're dealing with symptoms you've never dealt with and it's just a lot harder to be happy. Some of you are caring for aging parents and it's not the same because the holiday season doesn't bring joy and bliss and peace. It brings extra work and exhaustion as you try to make the holidays somewhat beneficial for the people that you're caring for. Broken relationships with family and friends, the pain of resentment, the pain of struggle, And for some of you, this is the first Christmas 
getting together where there are loved ones that are missing uh, because they've passed away this last year and, and things will not be the same without grandpa or without grandma or about that, that, that mom or that dad that's missing. Christmas, we might say, is a perennial conflict for contentment. And if it hasn't hit you yet, it will. If you're not already experiencing some of this, it's coming. This is a season where there's no way around it. You will be forced to deal with the issue of contentment. And there's something about the Christmas holiday that has a way of sort of forcing to the surface of life all these things that are going on inside of us. Uh, there's something about the holidays that, that provokes those and arouses those things. And we have to ask the question, how are we going to respond when that happens? You know, I think really there, there's only like three ways we can respond. So if we just simplify this really easy, Christmas, the struggle with contentment at Christmas, only three ways you can respond. Number one, you can be deceived. Okay, how's this go? You can be deceived by thinking if you just have this, then your life would be just great, wouldn't it? Right? And that, that's the deception of the holiday. And, and you guys know advertisers know this. Are you, are you onto this? Advertisers know this. They're very uncreative. There's only one thing that they do, and that's to get you to believe that if you just had this, what they're selling, you're going to be happy. Or the deception of thinking, you know what? I am happy. Things are great right now. My family's not sick. We're financially stable. Uh, We've got holiday plans. And believing that that is going to stay like that. So you can be deceived. The other way you can respond to this Christmas challenge of contentment is to be discouraged. And that's because because I don't have blank, there's no way I can possibly be happy. There's no way I can possibly uh, go into this season with a smile on my face. I might, I might fake it, but there's no way I can actually have it. Or or maybe you're sitting around the Thanksgiving tale and you're, look, you're looking at your family. And some of you just did this, right? You're looking at your family and you're looking there and the grandkids are there and the kids are there and everything's great and you know, you're full because someone made their famous cobbler and, you know, and, and things great, right? And you're just relaxing and you have a moment of joy. And then it hits you. What if grandma gets sick this year? What if my son doesn't grow up to love Jesus? Or what? It, and all of a sudden, fear grips you in, in the, the vanity of that moment. Because there's nothing you can do to ensure that that will last. So you can be deceived about Christmas contentment, you can be discouraged about Christmas contentment, or you can let Christmas define your contentment. And that's what I would encourage you, of our three choices, to do. Christmas can be a timely reminder that you and I need about the nature of true contentment and about the only one who is able to bring it. Christmas is a season that exposes our hearts, where are we putting our contentment, and points us to the coming of the Lord Jesus who alone can satisfy our souls. In fact, you can think of this. Christmas is your annual spiritual exam. It's your annual spiritual exam. There's only one question on the, on the test. It goes like this. What are you looking for for contentment? That's it. And every year, we have to ask ourselves that. 
Well, to help us to think about this topic of Christmas contentment, uh, would you turn with me, if you're not already there, to Philippians chapter 4, to this familiar text for probably most of us in Philippians chapter 4, Paul's little section here, verses 10 to 13. Uh, as you know, Paul is not writing this from the comfort of his easy chair around a nice warm fire in his living room. He's looking out the window and he hears the birds chirping and the sun is signing and there's a, a, a nice uh, blanket of, of newly fallen snow there. The birds are frolicking around, the squirrels. That, that, that is not the picture of the Apostle Paul when he writes this. He is in a dark, damp, cold, Roman house arrest situation. Uh, he can't just go do whatever he wants to do. He's not with anybody other than the Roman guard that's planted there to make sure he doesn't run away. And it's in this, it's in this shocking context that he writes about contentment. Now, I don't know about you, but that alone should provoke our interest, right? How does this guy who's in this situation keep talking about joy and contentment so much? I want to get to know him, don't you? Don't you want to learn from this guy? And and that's the context, really, that he begins to talk about contentment in in Philippians chapter 4 in our text here. Now, now what does he mean when he he says there in these verses, I have learned to be content? What, What are we even talking about when we're talking about contentment? Well, we need to remember, because there's sort of this Christian counterfeit thing. The Christian counterfeit contentment is a indifferent stoicism. It's calling grinning and bearing it for Jesus. And, and it's just sort of like this, nothing gets to me, I'm indifferent, I'm numb. That's, that's not what we're talking about. The contentment that Paul envisions here is a steadfast, stable calm in the midst of all circumstances. Contentment is the opposite of coveting. It's the opposite of anxiety and depression. That's why we see in the the verses right before these where he talks about be anxious for nothing, by everything with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and then you have this, this peace of God that surpasses understanding. Contentment is the opposite of fretting and worrying and anxiety and depression. Contentment is, you know what contentment is like? It's like a spiritual stability traction system in your life. It smooths out the constant bumpiness of life. And Christian contentment extinguishes a grumbling and murmuring spirit. It, it cuts off that sort of bitter sarcasm that views life through a jaded lens. It expels a hopeless pessimism that so many Christians possess behind their happy Christian mass that they wear to church every Sunday. What we need is true Christian contentment. An old pastor, pastored in the 16th century named Thomas Watson, he defined contentment like this, a sweet temper of spirit whereby a Christian carries himself in an equal poise in every condition. One of his contemporaries, another pastor, Jeremiah Burroughs, also from the same era, wrote this, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise, fatherly disposal in every condition. Whew. You get it? Look it up. It's it's really good. Jeremiah Burroughs. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about a quiet heart in the midst of difficult 
circumstances. So in our text today, we want to really dig in and try to discover what this biblical contentment is and how we achieve it. And the way we're going to do that is by discovering five keys to discovering biblical contentment this Christmas. Five keys to discovering biblical contentment this Christmas. And just a footnote to that, though I am framing this in a Christmas context, what we're going to talk about works all year long. Okay, You can use this any time of year. So you can think of it as kind of getting 12 months for the price of one. Is that okay? We do that? Okay. So key number one to discovering biblical contentment. Come with me to verse 10. And let's see this together. We need to remember, this is on your outline now, if you want to follow along. Remember that contentment is not merely enduring your circumstances, but rejoicing in them. Remember that contentment is not merely enduring your circumstances, but rejoicing in them. Look with me at verse 10. Paul writes, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Now, now what what is he talking about here? Um, You need to remember some of the background of this book. One of the reasons Paul is writing the book of Philippians is to thank them because they recently made a financial donation to his uh, missionary ministry. And uh, as he notes there, it wasn't that they weren't concerned before. They were concerned. They just lacked an occasion. So now now they lacked an occasion to get that gift to him. And so he's responding, saying, hey, uh, thankful for the gift. And, and that's why he wrote the letter. And, and, you know, if we're not careful, we might misread what he's saying. Because when we read that, we think, well, sure, he's rejoicing, right? I mean, do you get happy when you get unexpected money in the mail, right? We all get happy when that happens. But that's not quite what he is talking about. And if we read it closely, we'll see that, okay? He says, at last you revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you lacked opportunity. Now look at verse 11 with me. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am in. See, that helps us to see the gift that he received from the Philippians was the occasion, okay? It was the occasion of his joy, But it was not the cause of his joy. He tells us there in verse 11, he's not rejoicing because he's lacked some. He's like, oh yeah, finally some money. I can rejoice. No, no, no. He's saying, I'm rejoicing on the occasion of the event. That's right. But because of my contentment, because I possess something already in any circumstance, whether I'm getting checks in the mail or whether I'm not. Then, And I think that's the key here that Paul wants us to see. He wants us to draw together these two concepts, contentment and joy. Rejoicing, according to Paul here, rejoicing is the expression of his contentment. You see that? He's rejoicing as an expression of his contentment. You can think of joy as the finish line of contentment. It's, it's the climax. It's, it's the culmination of contentment. And that, that's so helpful, guys, for us to see, because I think we're, we're prone to believe that contentment means I just kind of have to grit my teeth and get through this. But that's not what Paul is teaching us here. He's saying, no, contentment is not just enduring your circumstances, it's actually rejoicing in the Lord in the midst of them. In fact, joy in all circumstances is a major theme of this book. And if you're familiar with Philippians, you know that's true. In fact, back at the beginning of the chapter, chapter 4, verse 4, he calls the whole Philippians, rejoice in the Lord always. By the way, how often does that mean we're supposed to rejoice? Always. Are you sure? You don't look convinced. Look, look, I'm not making this up. It's right there. Rejoice in the Lord 
always. Again, I will say rejoice. He, he's telling them this ought to be our regular state, our regular posture, our regular praise as believers to rejoice. And we see that in chapter 1, verse 18, he's telling them to rejoice. Chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, he says rejoice. 2.28, rejoice. 3.1, rejoice. It's just all over the letter. And that's shocking in light of the fact that he's writing from prison, isn't it? So how do we do that? Because that, that, that's not easy to do, is it? Um, I think we need a really specific example to try to figure out how on earth do we rejoice in the midst of difficult circumstances. Well, we'll flip back to chapter 1. I want to show you, using the Apostle Paul as an example, how you can do this. Because Paul tells us how this is even possible. Um, so, okay, remember he's writing from prison. And, uh, and when we might think, we might think that he's sitting in prison going, wait a minute. I'm the apostle to the Gentiles. How am I supposed to go to the Gentiles if I'm stuck in this prison? Well, let's see how he thinks about that. Look at chapter 1, verse 12. Now, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances, and what he means there is I ended up in jail, my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. So here's his conclusion. Being in prison is good because the gospel is prospering. Okay, well, how did he get there? Well, let's look. Verse 13. So that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard, that's the Roman Guard, and to everyone else, and so that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Now, to have that perspective, Paul has to buy in to two very difficult things in a trial. And you know this because it's hard for you when you're in a trial he has to really have a confidence that his God is working, doesn't he? Right? A robust trust and confidence in God. And that's what we see. The gospel is going forth. I'm trusting that God's using this. But notice notice the second thing. He's not sitting in the prison going, what am I doing here? You know, I can't, I'm supposed to be going to Ephesus and Philippi and Greece and Rome. And what does he say? He says, actually, as I'm looking at what God's doing through my imprisonment, things are going really well for the gospel. And that reminds us that not only do we need a real trust and confidence in God to do this, we need to be very careful how we're interpreting our circumstances, don't we? He's interpreting his circumstances through the lens of the ministry that God is doing. In fact, it gets better. Look at what he says. He says in verse 15, Some, to be sure, meaning Christians running around, are preaching Christ from envy and strife. They're doing it to compete with Paul and the other apostles. Others do it out of goodwill, right? The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. But watch this. These Christian imposters that are preaching the gospel out of envy and strife, look at verse 17. Why do they do it? They proclaim it out of selfish ambition rather from pure motives. Why do they do it? To cause me distress in my imprisonment. There were actually people masquerading as Christians going out and saying, watch this, we're going to go evangelize some people over here and Paul can't do a thing about it because he's locked up. Oh my goodness, he's the apostle, right? He's the, he's the gatekeeper of this era of salvation history. And yet, what does he say? Watch how he interprets it. Verse 18, what then? Only that in every way, whether it's in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I can say it. Rejoice. You see that? A confidence in God coupled with a proper interpreting of what God is doing in those circumstances leads to joy. 
Okay, so that's an example. We, we, we could spend the whole book doing that. We'd be here till Labor Day, and we wouldn't have time to do that. So, uh, but, but you get the idea. Watch how he does that, not just in that chapter, but throughout the letter. Okay, so back to chapter 4 now. Back to chapter 4. We need to be careful right out of the gate because we, we really seem to have an epidemic of grin and bear it for Jesus Christianity today. And Paul is saying that that's not it at all. We need to find a joy even in the midst of our difficult circumstances. Because real contentment is not just enduring circumstances. It is rejoicing in the Lord in the midst of them. Okay, that's the first key. Okay, that's hard, wasn't it? That's hard. Stay with me, okay? This is good stuff, but it, 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 we, we need to really, really hear what God has for us here. Number two, let's talk about the second key to discover this, this biblical contentment at Christmas that we're trying to get at. A second key... Uh, it's in verse 11 there, and on your outline it's this. Revise your thinking. Revise your thinking. Contentment is learned. Contentment is learned. Look with me at verse 11. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned, there it is, to be content in whatever circumstance I am in. Now, th- this is important that you see. The contentment and joy in verse 10 that we just talked about, did not come because Paul all of a sudden was got relief from his hard circumstances. That's not what he says. What he says is that his joy was driven, stay with me here, by a learned contentment. Now, every now and then the Bible brings two words together that really make our heads explode, doesn't it? I mean, you don't hear... Learning and contentment. Learning goes with algebra. It goes with playing the guitar. Right? No, no one just comes into the world and knows how to play. You have to learn that. But contentment, right? That's just something that, that happens or you get circumstances, right? You get the right circumstances, right formula, and boom, you're happy. But, but the Bible's doing something here that literally makes our natural brains explode. It's bringing together learning and contentment because true biblical contentment is learned. Contentment is a skill to be learned, not a situation to be sought. And it is so important that we see that. Now, now we know this. You know this. Uh, where are my grandparents here? Grandparents, raise them high. Hold, hold them high. You're proud. Okay, good. Now, you know this because you're, you're doing something right now. You, you are researching the perfect gift for your grandchildren right now. And let's let's say you know you do that, and you, you, uh, your son is wanting this new video game, right? And so you go in and you talk to the guy at Best Buy who knows everything, or you do your own Google research. You're like, okay, I got it, great. Pack it up, print, uh, 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 wrap it up, bring it, open it up. Ah, uh, oh, Grandma, this is for an Xbox. I have a PlayStation, and you got it for the wrong system. Now, your grandchild does not say. Oh, Grandma, it's okay. I have learned in all situations with which to be content. It's the thought that really counts. It's, right? And some of us old people, we do the same thing. Oh, you got the right and wrong system here, you know. That's what we want them to do, but that's not what they do naturally. Right? Contentment is not natural, guys. You know that. I know that. That's not a natural response. You have to learn it. There, there's something that has to happen inside of you through through training and effort and study and practice. 
that brings that about. And what Paul is telling us here, it's so helpful, is that his contentment is the result of an ongoing intentional development. Contentment is not something you just fall into. It's not just a situation that some people happen to possess and other people don't. Contentment is a way of living, listen, that you learn by practice. And the Christian life is the schoolhouse for contentment. Every moment is an occasion to grow in the skill of contentment or to regress from it. Do you want to learn? That's one of the questions, right? Do we want to learn this? And, and could it be, could it be that God has put some things in your life right now that are designed to help you to learn contentment? And you keep dropping out of class. Right? It's time to re-enroll. It's time to say, this is a precious gift that God offers us. You know, it, it's possible to not get to the place where the ebb and flow, the seasons of life, the temporary circumstances that are constantly changing. You can have an anchor in your soul that stabilizes your Christian life no matter what happens. Isn't that great? But you gotta learn it. You gotta enroll in the school and take the classes. You gotta study by grace through faith. You gotta apply what you're learning in scripture. Contentment is learned. We need to renew our thinking on that. We need to reset how we think about that and remember that contentment is something that we learn. You say, okay, okay, I got it, I got it. But how do I learn that? I'm I'm, I'm re-enrolling, Pastor Keith. I'm re-enrolling. Okay. Um, So how do I learn it? I'm glad you asked. Let's look at key number three now. Key number three, as we look at five keys for uh, discovering biblical contentment at Christmas, here's key number three. Recognize that contentment is possible in any condition. Recognize that contentment is possible in any condition. Look again at verse 11 with me. Not that I speak from want, For I have learned to be content in... What's the next word? Okay, that was pathetic. Let's try it again. All together now. I think it's all the same in King James and ESV and New New American Standard. It's all the same. I have learned in every situation... Where is it? Um, I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I'm in. That's a great word to highlight and, and, and underline there. Whatever circumstances... Now, if learning contentment was challenging enough, this is even more challenging, isn't it? In the equation of contentment, there is no variable for your condition. You with me? Your contentment is independent of your condition. Now, now you know how this works, right? There are some things in life that are conditional and some things that are not conditional, right? So I'll give you an example. Uh, family and I are up at Six Flags. It's holiday in the park. There's lights and they have roaring fires, even though it was like 75 degrees that night. And um, and, and it's holiday festivities with lights and whatnot. And and right at, at the, uh, 9 o'clock, that, that thunderstorm that rolled through here, do you guys see that Friday night? Rolls through, right? And they shut down all of the lightning rods in the park. All the outdoor rides that are metal sticking way high in the air that, that uh, tend to attract lightning. And it's like, well, too bad. Uh, sorry, it's closed because riding that ride is dependent 
on appropriate weather. Now, you can go inside, you can have funnel cake, you have a Coke, right? Those are not dependent on the weather. Some things in life are dependent, some things are not dependent. What Paul is saying here, even though it, it is radical and it's counterintuitive, it is so true. Contentment is not dependent on your condition. It's independent. Okay? Um, now, that is challenging to us, but it's so, it, it, it's, if, if you get this, if you get this, it's, it's freeing because sometimes we're tempted to conclude because this is going on in my life, it's hopeless. I can never be happy. I can never be at peace. I can never be content. I can never have quiet. I can never rest. And this verse blows away that notion, doesn't it? You can. By God's grace, you can. Because it's not conditional. And at this point we think, okay, well what right does the Apostle Paul have to tell me about my situation, my situation? Uh, listen to this brother's situation. If I might uh, just read from you, you don't need to turn there. This is not written by a man who had a yippy-skippy, happy-go-lucky life. You look at the biography of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And it is astounding. Just, just listen. You, you know this. But just listen. Just listen. I've been in far more, more labors, far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. That means they, they threw rocks at him to try to kill him. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep, meaning out in the ocean, floating around, praying and hoping someone would pick him up. I've been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from all those external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches that were under Paul's care. And he says, rejoice in the Lord always? This is the same guy that said, I have, I have learned to be content in all my circumstances, in whatever circumstance? Paul is uniquely qualified to talk to us about this subject. A more modern example, many of you know uh, Johnny Erickson Tata, uh, who in 1967, as a 17-year-old young lady, was involved in a diving accident which left her paralyzed from the neck down as a quadriplegic. Uh, those early years, she learned to paint with a toothbrush in her teeth. Or, excuse me, with a paintbrush in her teeth. Yeah, that's confusing. Get that right. A paintbrush in her teeth. She had to learn how to paint like that. Listen to what Johnny says about contentment. Contentment is realizing that God has already given us everything we need for our present happiness. It is the wise person who does not grieve for the things they do not have, but rejoices over the things they do have. Now, just a few years ago, she was diagnosed with late-stage breast cancer, had surgery, was declared cancer-free, and just recently, her cancer reemerged. She had surgery last week. And on the occasion of the surgery last week, on November 26th, this is what she said. When I received the unexpected news of cancer from my oncological surgeon, I relaxed 
and smiled, knowing that my sovereign God loves me dearly and holds me tightly in his hands. She reported, What good is it if we only trust the Lord when we understand his ways? That only guarantees a life filled with doubts. Think about that. Don't rule out the possibility of contentment because you seem to be in a hopeless situation. Paul helps us to see that our contentment is not conditional on our situation. It is possible in any condition. Number four, fourth key. We're trying to get our arms around discovering biblical contentment in the Christmas season. Here's key number four. We need to resist the lie that contentment is achieved by certain circumstances. Resist the lie that contentment is achieved by certain circumstances. Look at verse 12. I know, Paul writes, how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. We'll stop right there. You'll notice that verse 11 and verse 12 really go together. They're making a very similar argument, actually an argument that's made together, but we can dissect them a bit and see that verse 11 is really talking about the possibility of contentment, even if nothing changes, whereas 12 reminds us that you don't achieve contentment by getting specific circumstances. And, and he, he's so clear on that. In fact, notice, notice the language that he uses that's comprehensive. Look back at verse 12. In any and every circumstance. Does that about cover everything? Okay, three of you think it does. How about the rest of you? Does that cover everything? That's everything, isn't it? In any and every circumstance. Let's give some examples. How about humble circumstances? I don't have much. Prosperity. I have a lot. Being full, right? I got lots of food. It's, it's good. I'm going hungry. I don't have enough even for daily provision. Having abundance, suffering need. See, Paul is saying the same thing four different ways. You you don't get contentment through certain circumstances. You learn contentment in any circumstance. Now, Now, be honest. Be honest. We're in church. We need to be honest, right? That just doesn't seem true. It doesn't seem true. And you know. Because you've been through enough Christmases and birthdays, and you know how life works. When, when, uh, when those dear children back there open up the thing they've been waiting for since last Christmas, and they go, wow, oh, I'm so happy, Dad, I'm so happy, Grandma. You're like, see, change of circumstances, happy. It works, doesn't it? It works, you know that. You get certain things, you're happy. You lose certain things, you're not happy. It's it's normal life, and that's why this is so challenging. In fact, I did some research just to confirm this. I found this sign. Money can't buy happiness, but it can buy chocolate, and that's kind of the same thing. Anybody want to amen that? Not in the Bible, but maybe it should be. Um, Or here's another one. Money can't buy happiness, but it can buy cows, and cows make milk, and milk makes ice cream, and ice cream makes you happy. All right, got a bluebell down here. All right. So, of course, it is true that certain circumstances bring about happiness. But there's a problem. All of those things are temporary. In fact, be honest, 
Do you even remember what you got for Christmas last year? You were so excited about Guys, that tool's out in the shed. You, you thought you were going to use it for 18 projects that week. You haven't touched it one time this year, have you? Collecting dust. You know, and it's a DeWalt. It's a good one. Health, houses, relationships, vacations, they're here and they're gone. None of those things last. And what happens? We put all our hope in them and then we lose them and all our hope goes bleh. And, right? And we just go through life up and down and up and down. And it's like, I can't, I don't know if I can do this one more time. I don't know if I can go through this one more time. We need, guys, we, we need something deeper than that. We need something that transcends that. We need something more robust than that. Something that will stabilize us and keep us content and quiet and joyful through the ups and downs and losses and gains of life. And that's what God is offering us. It's not, it's not that you can't be happy over Bluebell. Please, go praise Jesus, but be happy over Bluebell. But don't put your hope in that. Ice cream melts. And I think part of the problem is we think that living on that sort of, I just had Bluebell, I just was with my grandkids, I just got the good report of health, I get, just got the unexpected money. We think that keeping life there is the goal. That's not the goal. That's an impossible goal. The goal is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, and to trust Him, to follow Him, to love Him, to obey Him. That's the goal. The goal is to be like our Savior. And you know, there's nothing special about being happy when you're in happy circumstances. Have you noticed that? Everybody does that, whether they like Jesus or not. Having happy circumstances and you're happy, everybody does that. You know what takes Jesus? And you know what takes the gospel? Is to be joyfully content when your circumstances are screaming at you the opposite reaction. That takes Jesus. And that's what he's offering us as a stabilizing anchor of our soul. We need to resist the lie that contentment is achieved by certain circumstances. That's key number four. Number five, here we are. Run to Christ as a secret to contentment. You knew, you knew we were going to get here, right? Jesus is the answer. I know that. Here it is, number five. Run to Christ as the secret to contentment. Verse 13, here it is. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Ladies and gentlemen, this could be the most misquoted and misunderstood Bible verse in the whole canon. Um, and we know this. You know how we know this? Because Cowboys beat the Saints this last week. We know this. There, there was some dear brother. He was up in the rafters of Jerry World. He, he, was, he was so high... His seat was so high, he had to get clearance from DFW to, to occupy the altitude. He was so high up in his seat. But he had, this brother had a sign that had Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Kim who strengthens me. And see, the boys won. See, that's why. Yeah, get him, Jesus. No, that's not what the verse is about. Uh, and we know that um, because probably the player that made Philippians 4.13 uh, the most popular is the guy who used to paint it on his face before the game, a guy named Tim Tebow. Played for Florida and later on went and played in the pros for a little bit. In 2009 interview following his college football career, he had an interview with the Baptist Press. 
Listen to what he says about this verse, okay? Most people think, can I quote a Florida guy here? Is that okay? Okay, I'm just checking. He's a brother in Christ, so we got to give him that. So, okay, let's listen to Tebow. This is, this is really important. Most people think that verse means I can do anything on the football field or I can make a lot of money. But that's not exactly what it's talking about there. It's saying I can be content with anything. When you're a Christian, you can be content because God has put you where you are. That's really a different view, isn't it? I know that I have Christ in me, so I can do whatever he wants me to do, and that's how I approach everything. That's right on, isn't it? I can do all things through him who strengthens me is not a blank check to get whatever you want. It is not the, the Jesus genie bottle that you rub to get whatever the outcome it is. What that means, I can do all things means, I can have a quiet, contented heart that rejoices in my Savior in any and every circumstance. That's what it means. And why can I do that? I can do that because He strengthens me. He helps me. And that is the key. Jesus is the key. But we will not be helped today if we just walk out the door and say, Jesus is the answer for my contentment. Jesus is the, Jesus is the answer for everything, isn't he? Of course he is. We're Christians. We follow Jesus. The question is, listen very closely, how does Jesus strengthen us? How does he help us? And so to do that, we, we have to go from being sort of vague and nebulous, Jesus is the answer, he'll strengthen me, to some specific ways that he does that, okay? Can I give you four specific ways that Jesus him, himself will help you, will strengthen you when you are fighting the battle of being joyfully content in hard circumstances? Can I do that? Now, now can, I, can, I, can I tip you off here real quick? This is, this is great. Do you know where we get these four things? from the Christology of the book. Shocking. We, we look at the book for what it teaches us about Jesus, and those things are not there so we can put them in a systematic theology book. They are there because that is what we need when we're struggling. You see that? We, we, we need to know who Jesus is, how he works, how, what he's like. And, and, and this, this book is booming with, with Christology, with stuff about Jesus that we need. And, and that tells us, See, we can't just parachute in to Philippians 4.13, rip out the verse and say, hey, this is what I need. You need to read chapter 1, and then you've got to read chapter 2, and then you've got to read chapter 3, and all of that informs what 4.13 really means. You with me? Okay, so, so read Philippians this week. Do that. Okay, so here's the first way that Jesus helps us specifically to be content, how he specifically strengthens us. Four things real quick. He helps us by reassuring you that he will complete the work that he started in you. He helps by reassuring you that he will complete the work that he started in you. Just flip back to chapter 1, verse 6. Right out of the starting blocks, Paul encourages the Philippians with this Christ reminder. Verse 6, chapter 1, verse 6. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. Listen very closely. Jesus helps you by reminding you he will finish the work in you. He will not fail you. He will not allow your faith to fail. He will keep you. Nothing can separate you from his love and his relationship. As Jesus said, nothing can snatch you out of the Father's hand. He will not allow you to be tested beyond what you are able. Nothing can separate from you, him from you. 
And, you know, we're celebrating Christmas. That's Advent. Jesus comes to the earth. You know why he's not here now? You know why he's still not in Bethlehem? Because he's back at the throne of his father. And you know what he's doing right now? He's praying for you. He's not just praying, you know, bless Mike today. It's he is praying specifically at the throne of his father for your unique struggle. Now, I dare say that if all of you whipped out your phones right now and we got a five-second video clip from the throne of God of him praying specifically for you, you'd be content. You'd have a joy that you couldn't even put into words. But you know what? Just because we can't see it doesn't mean it isn't true. The Bible tells us that's he's there right now appealing to his father that your faith, just like he told Peter, but Peter, I have prayed for you and your faith will not fail. So when you're tempted to believe, I can't make it, I can't go on, I can't do this, remember your Savior at the Father's right hand praying for you and your faith will not fail. He'll complete the work you started. That's the first way he helps us. Here's a second way he helps us. Number two, he helps us by reminding you that life is about him. He reminds you, or excuse me, he helps by reminding you that life is about him. Just look down to the end of the chapter, verse 21. He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. You ready for this? Life is about Jesus. That is a preschool Sunday school lesson, isn't it? Life is about Jesus, right? It's all about Jesus. But you know what? We need a preschool Sunday school lesson right now because it is really about him. Paul, Paul says something very similar in 2 Corinthians 5, 9. You know, here he's wondering if I stay in prison, I die in prison, or I get out. But you know what? It doesn't matter if I die or if I live because it's all about Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he says, whether I'm home or absent, whether I'm here on earth or I go to heaven, what do I do? I make it my aim to be pleasing to him. It is hard in our difficult circumstances to remember that life is not about me. Isn't that hard? It's not about being comfortable. Not about getting your way. It's not about being happy. It's not about getting what you want. It's about how God has uniquely designed a plan for your life that glorifies his son you realize that? That's, that's what he's called us for. All of us here have a unique plan that God has said, I, I have designed, I have tailored this plan for each one of you individually to glorify Christ in an amazing way. And he's calling us to participate in that, to, to buy into that, to live for that, to make life about him, not ourselves. And sometimes in our difficult circumstances, we just need to remember that life is not about being comfortable. It's about serving Jesus. That's number two. Number three, the third way that Jesus helps us in our struggle for contentment is this. He helps by becoming a man for your sake. He helps by becoming a man for your sake. You were wondering, how are we going to get Christmas in here? Well, here's how we get Christmas in here, because it's right there in the text. Look at chapter two, verse five. Here's Christmas. This is the incarnation. This is Jesus, God, becoming man, coming to the earth. Have this attitude, verse five, in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man. Why did he do all that? Here it is. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death 
on a cross. And for this reason, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. Do you see this? The book starts with joy. It starts with he's going to complete the work he started, even though there's affliction going on. It ends with contentment and peace that surpasses understanding. And stuck right in the middle, you ready, is Christmas. Because without the incarnation, without Christmas, without Jesus leaving the throne of his Father, taking on a human nature, coming here, living, dying, rising again to make atonement and redemption for our sin, without all of that, we don't have any of the hope of the book. We need a substitute, don't we? We we need a Savior. And you know the other reason that Jesus became a man not just to be our substitute? Hebrews chapter 4 tells us he came and experienced every human weakness, every human temptation, every human difficulty so he can relate to you and me. You think about that? God's not up in the cosmos saying, well, I'm omniscient, I know everything, so I know what you're going through. No, when you go to Jesus in your struggle, whatever it is, family, relationship, financial, emotional, heart, whatever it is, you go to him and say, Lord Jesus, I'm struggling, this is hard. You know what he says? I know what that's like. I know how that feels. I've been there. But not only does he relate and can sympathize and can show appropriate compassion, but the text goes on to tell us we can go to him and he will, he will give us grace and mercy to help in our time of need. And he knows exactly what he needs. You know, you know why he knows exactly what we, what we need? Because he's been there. And he's able to dispense uniquely tailored grace to our particular need so when we're tempted to say you know what no one understands no one gets it i no one knows no one has ever experienced pain like this just remember your savior your savior experienced it and if you will go to him he will help you number four fourth way jesus helps us specifically in our struggle for contentment here it is he helps by calling you to forsake all and value him above all He helps by calling you to forsake all and value him above all. This is the secret to contentment. The secret to contentment is valuing Christ over all things. And we see that as we look at chapter 3, verse 7. Now, just so you get the context here, he's just given his... Jewish history, right? You know, he's a Hebrew of Hebrews. He's, he's school as a Pharisee. He's an expert in the law. And, and, and in, in light of, of his theological, spiritual tradition, this is his conclusion. Chapter three, verse seven. Look at, look at it with me, please. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, just to make sure, he's not just talking about his religious background. He's saying, I look at everything in my life, my talents, my gifts, my circumstances, my family, my friends, all this thing. He says, verse 8, more than that, I count all things to be loss. Compared to what, Paul? In view 
of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And just in case we missed it, he says, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them all but rubbish. It's a trash heap. It's a dung pile. I count everything in my life as nothing compared to the value of knowing my Savior. Why would having Jesus be so much better, even than God's best gifts to us. Think about that. Why would valuing Jesus, why is that better than even valuing God's best gifts to us? Look at what he says. Verse 9. Because I might be found in him, not having a righteousness of own, my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Verse 10. And that I may know him. That's it and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his suffering, being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul says the value of knowing Christ is better than everything else in my life. Can we value Christ over health? Can we value Christ over family? Can we value Christ over wanting our children and our grandchildren to walk with Jesus? Can we walk with, can we value Christ over conflict-free family gatherings? Can we value Christ over a clutter-free home, over plans that don't go well, getting what you want, comfort, ease, being stress-free, pain-free, financially stable, loved, appreciated, or anything else? Can we value Him over everything else? You know, that old hymn was right. I'd rather have Jesus than anything that this world affords today. Christmas contentment is about valuing the Savior more than the season. It's about esteeming God himself more than his gifts Christmas contentment is about taking the time to really, truly settle this war in our hearts that says this, would I rather have anything else in the world I could possibly have or to have my Savior? That's a battle. Would I rather have temporary, circumstantial pleasure or deep-seated, enduring joy? Will I fight and grumble and fret over my present condition or submit to and trust in the goodness and wisdom of my heavenly Father who does all things well? You see, Christmas contentment is a heart calm that comes when we learn to value Christ over all else and joyfully submit to his divine orchestration in every circumstance. May God give us the grace to believe that and live in light of it. Let's pray. Father, that's what we ask. Will you help us? Will you give us the grace we need to walk and live in light of what you have showed us in this text today? To the glory of our great Savior, to the sanctification of our hearts, and to the building up of your church. Oh, Lord, help us to walk in these things. They're hard. Give us grace, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.